If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the book of John. We're up to chapter 6. It's the second half of the Bread of Life sermon. And we saw last week that this chapter began with Jesus beginning mobbed. He is, uh, he's healing the sick and he's doing miracles. And soon there are thousands of people literally chasing him through the desert, which is what would happen if you could really, you know, heal the sick, if you could really bring somebody's leg back and make a, a crippled stand up. Yeah, you would be mobbed, even chased through the desert, no matter where you went. And uh, at one point, he does a different miracle. In fact, he does a very unique miracle. Uh, The day was getting late, and there was no food for these people that had followed him out into the desert. So Jesus sat the crowd down on a hillside, and he went into creator mode. He took a, a few fish and some uh, bread that a boy had brought along in his lunch, and he started making more and more and more out of nothing. Hundreds of pounds of fresh food to feed thousands of people. And the text tells us that, that they ate until their bellies were full and there was food left over, basketfuls left over around them. It was this incredible miracle of him as the creator providing for his people. And the crowd literally went, went wild. They were going to make him king, force him to be king right there. But Jesus wouldn't have it, and he slipped away. But when they caught up with him the next day, they started to try to work him for some more bread. And he offered them something even better. Bread from heaven. Breader than than any physical bread, than any manna. Bread that would bring true satisfaction in life. Bread that would bring enduring eternal life, he said. And the bread, he said, was himself. He was the bread of God, the bread of heaven. And all they had to do to receive this bread of life was believe. Look at verse 40 of our text. For this is the will of my Father. Actually, this is just before our text. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's an incredible offer, but considering what he's just done, this miracle, it's, it's a pretty reasonable offer. It's a believable offer. Yet we find at the end of our section today, at the end of this long kind of sermon, we find this, uh, this response from the people, verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Thousands leave. They walk away. It's a, it's a mass rejection. The text tells us that they're offended by him and they leave. It's one of those uh, kind of 
watershed moments in Jesus' ministry where the real disciples, because some stay, the real followers are kind of revealed and defined. You see, as these, as these followers, thousands of them, respond to Jesus' offer in this rejection, it's, it's like this winnowing moment where the wheat is separated from the, cheat, uh, from, from the chafe, and, and the real followers are, are revealed. And it's kind of a litmus test, I think, for each of us personally to kind of look at. Are you the real thing? Have you received the bread of life? What is your relationship to Jesus? Are you, are you a Christian? Are you a true follower of Christ? Or are you kind of Christianized, following at a distance, as long as it's comfortable and, and, and prosperous for you, but if something comes hard, you're, you're gone, you're out. How do you know? Well, let's take a look at this crowd's response, their objections, the hang-ups they have with Jesus, hang-ups that are indicative of a heart that likes to follow at a distance but ends up rejecting him, and let's kind of compare ourselves. Let's think through it. So let's look at their first response, their kind of rejecting response in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? You see, the first problem that these people have with Jesus is that he makes a very exclusive claim. An exclusive spiritual claim. They aren't upset that he's claiming to be this incredible bread. After all, he just did this incredible bread miracle. What bothers them is that he's claiming to be from heaven, this bread from heaven. It's a claim that he's made four times since verse 32. You see, if, if, if he's just from Mary and Joseph, if he's just their son, that's fine. He would be like any other prophet, right? Just a, a man, a teacher, a miracle worker in some way, just a, a tool, an avenue among many by which someone may know something of God. They're good with that. But if his origin as this bread is actually heaven, there is a unique exclusive claim being made. The nature of which we see in Jesus' response to their grumbling, look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. You see, Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophecy predicting a time when God's people will be taught directly by him. And he's basically saying, oh, that's me. I'm the only one who has seen God and comes from him. So to learn of God and, and be taught by him is to come to me. There is no other way. 
To put it negatively, if you haven't come to him, then really you haven't learned about and don't know God at all. It's an absolute claim to be the unique revealer of God. And and even more than that, the only distributor of, of God's life, of eternal life. Good verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This really gets under their skin. You see, the Jews had two core beliefs about the Torah, about their law. And the first one is that to know the Torah is to be taught by God. And the, and the second one is that the study of the Torah brings life. And Jesus says, well, actually, no. No, no, that, that, that's me. Both come alone in him. Of course, we know that all the Torah, all the law, all the Bible, it, it is about him. It's fulfilled in him. It's only as he brings you to him and you know him that there is life. All the traditions and rituals, even their greater teachers, even their study of the law, is useless without him. This is his claim. And this ticks them off. And the grumbling begins. And really, it's the same today, isn't it? People like Jesus, uh, the healer, they're good with that. That's great. Everybody could use a healer. People like Jesus, the teacher, That's great. Jesus, the meal provider, fantastic. Jesus, the soul satisfier, okay, I like that. The problem is when it's Jesus only. People don't like that. Jesus, the only way to know God. No way. It's the unique, exclusive claim that gets them. Once got one of my neighbors, I was living up on the South Hill, he's not a, belie- not a believer, but I, I convinced him to read the Gospel of Mark with me. And we read through the Gospel of Mark, and he, he loved it. He loved it. He, he couldn't believe what he was learning. He couldn't believe this person of Jesus. He thought Jesus was awesome. He even wanted to give over his life to Jesus until he realized that Jesus was saying he was for everybody. He's fine that it was, hey, he's like, well, this is good for me, it's good for you, but everybody? Uh, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't do that. I met another guy one time, we were talking, and we were talking about, I was talking about how Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only unique way to know God. And he said, well, no, I, I think it's like this. I think it's like a mountain, and God is at the top, and there's all these different trails up the mountain, and Jesus is one of them. Of course, the Bible says there's kind of this blocking thing around the mountain called sin that none of those trails can get through, that God has to come from his end to us. We can't get up that mountain. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I've come from the Father. This is how you know God. 
in our culture of, of tolerance and, and, and diversity, Jesus, in one sense, is welcome to be on the shelf with Muhammad and Buddha and whoever else, but any hint of uniqueness is taboo and it's explosive. Jesus' statement means that all other philosophies, all other religions, all other spiritual guides are bunk, they're fakes, they're pretenders, and they're useless. So I guess the question for all of us, if we want to kind of examine his hearts, is does that bug us? Does that bug you? Does it offend you? It's a point of clarification as to where you stand in relationship to Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe in him alone. To follow Jesus is to follow him alone as the only way. But the offending here is, uh, is really just getting started. Look at verse 51 with me. We'll read 51 through 55. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I am the bread that I, and the bread that I will give, you, give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So the Jews said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, so Jesus said to them, excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eat, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, these words would have offended uh, these Jewish readers, this crowd, I would say, at many levels. And, and the least is probably just the, the graphic cannibalistic imagery. Several of the uh, commentators pointed out that the word in verse 54 in the Greek for, for eat there, uh, eat of my flesh, but is, is trago. It's a used term of animals kind of munching away, devouring. So to a group of, of people with strict dietary laws who aren't even supposed to drink any blood whatsoever. This is pretty repulsive imagery. And apparently some of them took this very literally, right? It says that in verse 52 they were kind of disputing about it, you know, like how are we going to eat him? There's a lot of us and there's just only so much. But some seem to see the metaphor they're disputing. Some are probably like, no, I think it's a metaphor. And I, and I think clearly those who are on the, of the metaphoric understanding were in the right. But this is actually where the real offense comes. In the metaphor and what he's, what he's actually talking about. Because if you know the rest of the book or, or any gospel, you know Jesus is referring to his imminent sacrificial work at the cross, where he'll give his, his, his life, his flesh and blood for the life of the world. This is where he will sacrificially take the punishment for our sins on himself and, and die in our place, that we may be forgiven and united back into relationship with God. This is where he'll tear through that sin barrier that keeps anybody from going up the mountain and open the way to the holy God because he's the sinless God-man the only one who can do it. Now, the crowd at the time, did they understand all of that? No. 
They didn't understand the fullness of, of the cross yet at all. But the idea of him dying a sacrificial death for them was clear, and I think they pick that up. I mean, he's been already introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's now speaking of giving his life, his flesh and blood. So with their, with their background, right, with their temple sacrificial system background and the Day of Atonement where the sins of the people were symbolically placed on the lamb who was slaughtered, the implication is clear. Where he's going is, is to a place to, to die in atoning, as an atoning sacrifice, as, as a final, full atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world to bring forgiveness and life. That's what's going to happen at the cross. And he's asking them to partake of this, of him. This is what he's getting at, and, and, and they know it, and at least they're starting to pick up on it, and it's offensive to them. We're not used to that. We're not used to the cross being offensive. We're like, oh, it's such a wonderful... No, it's offensive. First of all, it insults their, their religiosity, or at least their sense, of, you know, their sense of religious effort and control. You see, over the years, they had turned God's good system of sacrifice, which was meant to keep them in, in total reliance and humility before their holy God. They had turned it into a system of, of works by which they could try to earn his forgiveness by keeping these rituals. It gave them a sense of, of a spiritual control. And of course, it, it gave the priests a certain power. Humble reliance had been twisted into ritualistic works. And we do the same today. That's what every man-made religion is. It's, we, want, we want control. We like control. And Jesus rips that away here and says it's all about total reliance on him, on his final, full flesh and blood sacrifice. You've got to believe him. You've got to put your faith in him. You've got to partake of him in this, which is where I think this teaching gets even, even more offensive because not only does it insult their their religiosity and their practice, it demands real belief. Real, committed, dependent, functional faith. Look at verse 40 and look at verse 54 here. And we'll read them in parallel because they kind of define each other where he's talking about belief. Verse 40, For this is the will of the Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now go to verse 54. Let's start at 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see how you get eternal life and raised up on the last day? You look to the Son, you put your faith in him, you feed on him. You eat his flesh and blood. They're defined together. So to believe in Jesus, to come to him, to truly follow him, is to digest all that he is, to fully partake 
of Jesus and his sacrificial work that he's about to do. With all that you are. Take it in with all that you are. That's why it's parallel to to eating. See, there's no easy believism here. Believing in him is not, you know, kind of giving him the God nod. Yeah, I acknowledge his existence. I think he's real. He seems great. It's not about believing in him as a good teacher. It isn't about knowing lots about him and having much respect and admiration for him. This is about eating, feeding on him for your life. Total appropriation and reliance on his sacrificial work as as your life-giving sustenance. I was thinking about this with kind of a meal with, you know, Thanksgiving up. You're sitting, you're sitting before this feast. And, and you could just kind of study each piece of food and observe the texture and the shape. Talk about how beautiful it is. And, and, and you could take some of the foods, you know, the turkey and the mashed potatoes, and you could kind of look up their cal- you know, caloric values and the stats. But if you don't eat it, it's useless. I think this is how many people, they they, they want to come to Jesus in this kind of interesting study way. We admire his teaching. We observe it in different ways. It's it's a beautiful thing. He's beautiful. Put him up there on the shelf. That's not the belief he's looking for. It's about taking in all that he is. This is what I think verse 56 and 57 are are kind of getting that. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Feeding on Jesus, believing, involves this total practical reliance on him and his sacrificial work on your behalf like like you like you rely on eating food to live physically you rely on him completely for your spiritual life and of course to take him in in this way to really appropriate Christ and his work this way means a life that's It's not only nourished by him in this way, it's it's shaped by this sacrificial work. Nourished and shaped by the cross. To appropriate such a savior is inherently to commit to a costly sacrificial life yourself. As he says quite often, "Take take up your cross and follow me, as he will say to his disciples. These People were being asked to follow a Savior who was heading to a horrible death. Not an earthly throne. Not a place where he's just going to keep passing out the bread. His life is giving, given to serve and to save others. So to partake of him, to truly believe in him and receive his life will mean the same for their lives. So how does the crowd respond? Well, they don't like it. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? It's not that they don't understand it, but it's like, they don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to that. That's hard. And I love Jesus' response in verse 61 and 62. I didn't, this is a little bit cryptic. I didn't understand it at first until I had a little help from the commentaries. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at this. Uh, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Don Carson helpfully points out that the idea of ascending here is the same idea of Jesus being lifted up in this gospel. And in this gospel, when Jesus is lifted up, it's always pointing to the cross, where he's lifted up on the cross. It's the beginning of his ultimate lifting up to heaven, right? The beginning of his ascension. So Jesus uh, is essentially saying, if you think hearing about the cross is offensive, wait until you see it. This is what they have to grapple with. Embracing this crucified Savior. This, embracing the cross, partaking of a Savior who, who will die and committing to all that he is. It's the very heart of true belief in Jesus. And, and this would, would mean hard stuff for these disciples, right? In their life. And they know it. It means that their Messiah, this one they've been hoping in for salvation, is not necessarily going to bring them comfort and, and, and prosperity in this life now. The very thing that they've been pursuing him for. That's why they were there. He's, he's healing people. He's, he's bringing the bread, comfort food, make our life better. Now. No, it will more likely mean trials and tribulations as they follow a crucified Savior. It will mean a cross-shaped, sacrificial life. Think, think, think of this. It will mean also a complete shift in their religious paradigm for all these religious Jews that, that are there. It, mean, it means admitting that they're, all their study and their ritual practices and their good works that they've taken such pride in have been useless. And none of it have they actually known God. Think about that. Let me look at my track record. Hey, children, all that I've been teaching, wrong. Think how humbling this would be for a, a scribe or a Pharisee, any devout Jew. And what it would look like in their life, the changes that would look to follow Jesus. Drastic change, a reorienting of their thinking and priorities and relationships. And it's the same today. And my first job after seminary was not uh, at this church. It was not actually in ministry. It was at a unit investment trust firm in Chicago because I had to support my family. And uh, as I was getting trained, I was hooked. I was doing this phone work, customer service. I was hooked up by a wire to the, a guy right next to me who could hear everything that I was saying for days I think a week at least, we were hooked together, right? So we became friends, and we began to talk. And uh, he was a Mormon guy, come to find out. And uh, so I started talking with him, sharing with him. And you know what I shared with him? I shared with him this. 
the whole story of the Bible and how it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And my point was, why do we need a second revelation? And he got, at the end of it, he got it. He said, this is amazing. He was excited about it. He was doubting everything he'd ever learned in Mormonism. But then he came in one day and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I, I kind of said, well, well what's up? And uh, he had been considering what it would mean for his family, for his marriage. And he said these very words, it's just too hard. And you know, when you understand belief this way, this, this biblical understanding of belief that's it's a real taking on, a partaking, a full uh, uh, belief, it is hard. It's very hard. Maybe you feel this way this morning, if you're honest. You want to believe. You think you want to follow Jesus, but you haven't been able to make yourself go there. Because you see, this is hard. Maybe it makes you sad. I think of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus, and he went away sad. Maybe you have a friend that you, you can see that, that they just can't get there. They're, they're too proud, or they're caught up in their comfortable life, or their religiosity, and they can't, they can't get there. It just seems hopeless. It's too hard. Well, there is some hope here in the, in the text. Look at verse uh, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There is hope because God's Spirit is the one who gives this life. We, we, we can't believe so as to receive this bread of life in a sense because the flesh is of, of no avail. I can't do it on my own. That's our natural state as sinners. We can't do this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that natural man can't even discern spiritual things. It's just too hard. It's impossible. Romans 1 reminds us that we have foolish minds that are darkened by our sinful wills and we are hardened by our sinful rebellion. You see, the picture of this chapter that starts with Jesus as the creator God feeding his creatures, mankind, from his very hand and then ends with them walking away from him in rejection is really a picture of all of us from the garden on. You see, we may think that our hang-up is Jesus' exclusivity. It's, I, can't, I just can't deal with that. We may think that it's, it's this cross and sacrifice. I just can't. We may think that it's giving up, having to give up living for some of the stuff that we're living for, but ultimately these are just outworks, outworkings of a sinful rebellion, our very nature that can't and won't believe unto life. 
That's why John wrote this book, that you may have life, that you may believe and have life. That's what these words are about, right? To break through because God's spirit can give you life. You can't do it. His spirit brings life. He can bring one to believe. He can work through these very words to open your heart and draw you in. And by the way, that's been the golden thread all the way through this text, if you didn't notice. The sovereign work of God to draw people in. In verse 37, the ones that come to Jesus are the ones the Father gives. In verse 39, Jesus promises to lose none that the Father has given him. In verse 65, the Father grants people to come In verse 44, we have my favorite picture of God's saving, drawing action. Let's go ahead and read verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draws there is the same word in in, in the Greek that John uses in chapter 21 for drawing in a heavy net of fish to the shore. It's also used of Paul and Silas being dragged before the authorities. It's a word that implies resistance. But you're being pulled in. God is pulling in his people, not from their confusion and darkness or neutral indifference, but from their selfish, destructive rebellion. This is what God has done, what he's been been doing, what he's doing today. Some of you know this in your own experience. When I hear your testimonies, you talk about, hey, I had no interest. I was going my own way. Something happened. God sent somebody God's word. I started to, to be interested. I don't know why. God started drawing you in by his grace. So what do, you, what do you do if you feel that draw this morning? Maybe you felt it and you, nope. Well, you don't do nothing. You just go, well, he'll do it. This chapter is riddled, this whole book is riddled with calls to come to Jesus, to follow him, to feed on him, to believe in him. It's calling But if you're struggling or you have a friend who is struggling and it kind of seems impossible and hopeless, remember verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God has reached out, he's reached down with the very life of his son Down the mountain, he's opened the way back to him through his sacrifice, and now he's drawing people to him by his spirit through these very words of the cross. He didn't just draw back then. He's drawing now by his spirit. He draws right now through his word. His words are the very means by which God can act upon our hardened souls and bring us to the true bread of life. Look at verse 67 with me. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I love that. He just lays it out there. Do you want to leave as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, what will it be for you today? A hard teaching that you just can't accept? Or the words of eternal life that bring you to God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you bring real bread that's not fleeting and temporary, but it's the very life of your Son that can be our life if we'll come and receive him. I pray that you would help all of us to do that every day, and and particularly those here today that this might be the first time they're feeling the draw, feeling your grace, your hand upon them. Lord, draw them to you, make them yours. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name, amen.